the express. What's going on, everybody? It's Mason here from The Express. On today's show, we're going to have Ashley Maxey, who is a senior lecturer and research assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Vanderbilt University currently. Ashley has a diverse background in education with spending time at Purdue, Iowa, Ohio State, Manchester, and Tennessee State University. Today, we're going to be discussing positive psychology and how it can be achieved on a daily basis. And we're going to dive into several routines and habits that can help you implement this to your daily routine Uh, we're going to discuss a lot of stuff including gender and racial inequalities especially from a psychological view and educational view i guarantee you guys this is a really really good episode that you're going to be able to gain at least one or two things at minimum maybe more that you can implement on your daily basis so without further ado here's ashley Well, definitely thank you for coming again. Um, if you would please start, uh, we've done some research on you and we've kind of, you know, Dansby has told us about your class and everything, which is very interesting to us. If you could kind of tell us and our listeners, you know, where did you come from? How did you get to where you are at Vanderbilt? Um, I'm an Ohio State fan, so obviously when I saw you spent some time at Ohio State, I was ecstatic about that. But um, just kind of your background, where you're from, how you got to where you are, we'd love to hear that. Yeah, so um, the abbreviated version is that I'm from Chicago, and I uh, picked uh, Purdue for my undergrad education only because they I was going to be on their equestrian team, and I was not academically gifted or particularly driven by academics. And so when I got to Purdue, I did a lot of kind of switching my major into classes where I had professors that were really passionate. So I was more kind of following people's energy than I was really following a topic that interested me. And luckily that landed me in um, a gen psych class that, or general psychology class that was taught by a really enthusiastic professor. And I was just really attracted to his sort of energy and passion for the subject. So I just took more classes with him and worked in his lab and just kind of like tried to pursue that as much as I could. And, you know, his interest in the topic was really contagious for me. And one of the things that is ultimately related to positive psych is the fact that um, a lot of people equate psychology with therapy, right? So if you say you're a psychologist, people automatically think that you're a therapist. or that you have any interest in analyzing their dreams, which you do not. Um, And so I went to grad school to study cognition and perception, and I studied attention and ultimately memory. So then my research now is about cognitive function and memory and forgetting. And so, yeah, I've been at a couple of different institutions. I spent some time at Ohio State. I am actually not a Buckeye fan because I went to Purdue and Ohio State. I, I, yeah. I was going to ask which Big I understand. Ten team. I understand. I went to Purdue and then I went to Iowa for grad school. So I had like other Big Ten. Yeah. Way before Ohio State. Right. Well, and Ohio State wins everything. That's just annoying if mm. you go to another school. So I am I not like them. She, she's ingrained in the Midwest culture. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's okay. That's right. Um, 
but I mean, I did, I had some fantastic students there, actually, some of my uh, fondest relationships. So one of them is having a wedding in December. I'm really hoping that we'll be able to go to that. So anyway, I do love my Buckeye students. But um, I was coming to Vanderbilt and was asked if I wanted to teach this positive psychology class. And my first reaction was like, no, that's clinical psychology and that's clinical psychology is more therapy or counseling sometimes. And so I thought like that feels like that's really clinical and that doesn't interest me. But I did more reading about it and realized that there is actually no area in psychology that owns positive psychology. So, you know, the areas in psychology are like social psychology, which is kind of sociology-esque and cognitive psychology, which is like memory, decision-making, attention, clinical psychology, and then positive psychology can actually be incorporated into like any of these. So I felt really empowered by that because I thought that the message is also that any of us can then use it, right? So you don't have to be a psychologist, or you don't have to be a psych major, all of these things in order to really understand it. So then the more the reading that I did about positive psych, the more I also got really interested in the fact that what they say is that in terms of your happiness, they say that 50% of your happiness is genetically determined. You have a genetically predetermined set point, but even genetics can actually be overcome. Then 10% of your happiness is from your life circumstances, but then 40% of it is what you do or your habits, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of people, the example is often like, oh, if I were able to move, I would be happier. Well, there's actually a lot of evidence that says that that's not true, right? So that's only the 10% of your life circumstances. That's a very small percentage of what contributes to your happiness. So all, so all of that is to say that, like, I got really interested in the research that was related to that 40% about how what you can do attributes to your happiness. And I had a personal experience with a spinal cord injury that also really drove a lot of that home for me. So I don't know how much you, Danzi, you want me to talk about that. I, oh, I would, I would love to hear it. Cause I mean, it's such a powerful message and something that really, I feel like almost, uh, I guess like strengthened my connection with, with the class and, and wanting to learn more, you know, and, from you and, and just the course itself, because it was, I was just blown away and still am honestly. So, um, well, that's very nice. I, so, okay. So the abbreviated version of that is that, um, I, uh, ruptured my L4, L5 disc and like literally nothing happened. So people are constantly thinking like I was, you know, I was in a car accident. Actually the, the doctors actually didn't believe me that nothing happened either, but, um, I just had back pain and I went to bed and, over a series of like taking drugs and knocking myself out, um, I woke up paralyzed. And my husband had to like carry me to the car because I was paralyzed from the waist down. And it turned out that my L4, L5 disc had ruptured and that it was impinging on my spinal cord. So ultimately they um, did emergency surgery to just basically cut off the part of my disc that was pressing on my spinal cord. And then it was sort of a wait and see what is going to recover. So when your spinal cord is being pressed on, the messages aren't being sent down your spinal cord and you're killing those nerves. So sort of like, depending on how long you were, the disc was pressing on your spinal cord will dictate sort of with a lot of degrees of freedom, what your recovery will look like. And so, um, 
that really spiraled me into a pretty deep depression afterwards because not only did I sort of not understand everything about handicap accessibility and how I was going to continue to be a mom to three young kids and, you know, what my life was going to look like, but I was also dealing with a lot of chronic pain. So uh, there was also a lot of nerve pain that was associated with that. And my dad um, died from alcoholism. So I'm like very scared to take medication and I don't drink anymore. And I just sort of like, you know, was caught in this I don't want to be overly medicated, but I'm in a lot of pain and I can't envision what my future will look like. And I don't know how to deal with any of this. Right. And it came out of nowhere. Right. And like still didn't have an explanation to it. So when I was in the uh, inpatient rehab, like a lot of people were kind of suffering from regret about what they did to cause that, you know, like there was a guy who got drunk and jumped off a balcony into a pool and got a spinal cord injury from that, right? So a lot of people like had done something to cause it. And I just truly woke up paralyzed. So there was a lot that went into trying to kind of deal with that. But the um, stories that I shared with our positive psych class that Dansby was in were um, kind of ways that ended up pulling me out of it that I didn't know at the time was really basic positive psychology. So for me, it was being really taken aback when people would express compassion or understanding about what it was like to be handicapped. And part of it was that I was working at Ohio State at the time. And a lot of that compassion and kindness came from people who were much younger than or who were my, you know, I'm in my thirties, but people who were my students. Right. And I just kept thinking, no way when I was in my young twenties, did I have the, the forethought to show this kind of compassion for other people? So like there was a time when I got to campus and it was raining really hard. I think I shared this story with our class that, um, I uh, was using, when you're using a mobility device, you don't have available hands to carry an umbrella, which truly had never occurred to me before I was in this situation. So I was sitting in my car and it was pouring rain and I had to get inside to teach my class. And um, I just, I knew that I couldn't walk any faster. I walked really slow. I still walk pretty slow. And um, I couldn't hold an umbrella and I had this backpack that had my laptop in it. My laptop was going to get ruined. And I just like had no solution to this problem and was really, really struggling to not be wildly depressed about the situation. So finally, I just sort of thought, well, I have to go because my class is going to start. And canceling my class just didn't seem like like I was already there. You know what I mean? I wanted to right. save canceling my class for a day. I was sick or something. Um, so I just got out of the car and started walking. And this student who did not, you know, it's Ohio State. There's thousands and thousands of people there. The student did not know me. Um, walked past me and he just stopped and he held his umbrella over me and walked up to the building with me and walked like extremely slow, right? Like he was not going to that building. He didn't know who I was. He was not going to benefit from this gesture of kindness whatsoever, right? And I was just so blown away that he thought he saw this need. You know, he's like 20 years old or something. And he saw this need and he helped me out in this time when I was in a really bad situation. And I know that sounds really simple and silly, but when somebody is like as low as I was, that kind of gesture 
is just really powerful. And we kind of touch on that a lot in our social media stuff that we post is like, you know, holding the door for somebody or literally simply smiling at somebody can literally, you don't know what they're going through that day or in life. And something that small can really like change their whole outlook. Yes. Yeah. Because we, I mean, that we try and preach that because not everyone is blessed to have, have necessarily the, the platform that I were to have or have the resources or whatever, but that's not the point. The The gesture isn't necessarily giving tons of money to somebody, you know, or, or an organization or charity. It's, it's how do you use your manners? How do you use your words? How do you hold the door for somebody? You know, like there's so many little simple gestures throughout the day that really impact somebody's life, whether you realize it or not, you know, and I, and I do think that those gestures do help you as well because you're doing it, you're performing something kind of like putting some, you know, positive energy into the air, uh, you know, being able to, to connect with other people. Um, you know, it's just something that unfortunately like humanity needs a lot of right now. Um, yeah. but it's just important to note that simple things go a long way. And, um, so a big part of what I do every day when I teach is I stand at the front of my door and I greet every student. doesn't matter who you are. Hey, how you doing? How you doing today? Joke with them, do whatever, handshake, whatever. But you'll be surprised the kids that it's always the kids that come in high school. It's the kids that come back to see you that you, it's the person you're like, they'll never come back. Mm-hmm. And they're always the ones that come back and they'll be like, you greeted me every day or you call. This is another thing. It does not matter to me what your name is. I will call you by your name. Mm-hmm. If I can't say it, I'll figure it out. Right. You're not going to have some extravagant name and I'm not going to call you David. Your name is your name. And so I think when you make that little effort, like I had a, a person, young girl, she um, hated social studies and I teach social studies. And I'm like, why do you hate social studies? She says, well, none of my teachers have pronounced my name correctly. And I was like, well, you know, the fact that they're not putting in that little bit of time because, and even at a, you know, Ohio State or whatever, Vanderbilt, you could easily become a number. But I think when you, you know, make it personal and I say, hey, how are you doing today? And I say their name that that may make the little, that little part of their day could really like, you know, I was having a terrible day, but that little thing makes it that much better. So I do really think that the little things that you do have a large impact. And it's kind of like little things in life. The little things in life build up mm-hmm. to be bigger things. So mm-hmm. it's the small I victories. Agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Have you guys ever gone through like a, like the Starbucks drive through and had the person say, the person in front of you paid for you and you're the 15th person in line. No, but I'm terrified that's going to (laughs) happen. I I try to do that every so often. Just I'm terrified. I mean, it's like a five buck coffee, you know, it's like mine will be $55. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You don't know what the order is behind you, but I'm always this, but this has happened to me repeatedly where I'm like, what this chain of kindness has been going on for how long? And the person who started, it doesn't know, you know, they'll never know. But the the person who's working the drive-through is like blown away that this has been perpetual. You know what I mean? It's gotta be kind of exciting for them. The drive-through worker sees that and then goes out in her mm-hmm. life and does something you know mm-hmm. that that's the Stay ripple forward. effect is real yeah the ri- the ripple effect is very real um so you go to so you come to vanderbilt obviously um teaching positive psychology what other things do you do at vandy so um i run a research lab where i study memory and forgetting and then the other classes that i teach include general psychology which in 
typically speaking, this is, this is a broad sweeping statement, but a lot of times faculty don't enjoy teaching those introductory courses because you have to cover like the whole field of psychology, for example, and truly my heart lies in a subset of it, right? So it's sort of more enjoyable sometimes to teach the upper level courses that are specifically in the subset that I really love. But the really fun thing about teaching gen general psychology to me is the um, array of students that you have and because they're from all over campus, they're not necessarily psych majors, right? And then also the way in which you kind of have to broaden your horizon in terms of noticing how psychology is everywhere so you can use it in your class, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can't like turn on the news or the radio or read a book and not see how it's related to psychology, which I think has also helped with positive psych. Yeah. Um, and then I also teach a course on computer programming um, for programming experiments and analyzing data. So it's like an upper level research methods class. And then I also teach cognitive psychology, which again is like cognitive functioning, like memory, mm -hmm. attention, decision-making, problem-solving. Yeah. I think it's important to note too, something that you said early on is you, obviously you, you said you weren't very interested in, in psych and, but you had a professor that ultimately showed you the way and, and gave you that energy to pursue and make an impact in the world like you are now, you know, especially, you know, at Vanderbilt with the courses you teach, it's like keeping that in mind and just your daily life too is you always can provide like that pathway for somebody else to ultimately find their passion or find their purpose in life and, and help kind of bring some fulfillment to their life because they may not know which direction they're going in. I think that's, I thought that was so cool. Yeah, one of the uh, happiness habits that people talk about in positive psychology is actually called increasing flow. So we didn't do this in May master because there wasn't enough time, but flow is just that idea of like you're in the zone with whatever it is that you're doing right so uh, people say you know one of the reasons why seeking out flow activities where you're just really engaged and you're not distracted and you're uh, really enjoying whatever it is that's going on in the moment is so good for your happiness is because um, in order to reach this flow state you have to keep trying to do something harder right so for example like I use the example of cooking because I'm not a very good cook. And so in order for me to cook a good meal for my family, like I can't do anything else. Like I'm not, I could never be most people that like hosted a dinner party and talk to my friends while I was cooking. I just like could not accomplish everything would be burned. And so for me, like a flow activity is cooking dinner. But then as I get better at cooking this particular dish, it's no longer a flow activity, right? And you could, you could apply that to sports or whatever else, right? Mm -hmm. And the reason why flow is so good for you is because it forces you to keep growing, right? So in order to keep engaging in a flow activity, you have to do something that's harder and harder and challenge yourself. And when you're continuing to grow, you're becoming more, you know, like all of the trickle down, right. the trickle down effects of continuing to grow. And what I love about that is the example it gives for other people, right? Which is to say, we live in this really distracted environment where people are multitasking and, you know, like I have trouble watching TV without also doing something else, right? Or mm -hmm. I can't really like sit down and watch a movie with my kids without also working or being on my phone or I'm oh, cross-stitching yeah. <laughs> now like an old lady. <laughs> but, you know, the if you can imagine how teaching, uh, setting that example for other people that it's important to try to invest your time in activities that are completely all encompassing and that that is really good for your mental health and your desire to keep growing and creating new goals for yourself. Goal setting is another happiness habit in positive mm -hmm. psychology. Well, I think the part of that too is 
people need to realize it's not necessarily about, all right, I'm going to go, you know, this whole day without looking at my phone. It's like, I'm going to set a specific time, maybe from, you know, 1130 to 1230 today, where I am not going to be attached to, you know, my phone or a technological device. Like it, you, you can start small. I mean, it's just like marathon runner doesn't start by going and running a marathon. You know, they start by building their miles and building, you know, their stamina. I feel like it's similar, you know, in this regard. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually, the, uh, the first couple of years that I had my spinal cord injury, the one time that I forgot that I was paralyzed would be when I was giving a lecture because when I'm lecturing, I'm really trying to think, I'm trying to think of all the information that I want to communicate to my class. I'm trying to think of how I'm communicating it. I think about how I confused other students in the past so I can make sure I'm more clear this time when I'm giving this lecture. And I think about how interesting it is and I'm thinking about real world examples, right? And I'm really in the zone and class would end and then it would be like, oh shit, I'm paralyzed, right? Like this kept happening where I would realize how much I love my job because it was sort of this escape from right. this other thing that I was doing. Um, I, could I ask, so when, when you were going through your, uh, spinal cord injury and everything like that, and, and some of the, uh, the rehabilitation process, what were some of those habits, if you don't yeah. mind sharing that kind of pulled you out of that? And like you said, if, if 40% of our happiness is coming from habits and routines, you know, that are directly correlated with that happiness. Like what were some of those? Because that stat in itself is amazing. Just the, yeah. I, you never would have thought that you can break it down. Um, because so many times people are like, man, if I just had this new job, I'd be so much happier. And sometimes it's like, that's, it's it, lot, you need to check inside here first. Because, right. Yeah. So what, what were some of those tools that you used? Okay, so like I mentioned earlier, gratitude was the biggest one for me. And gratitude actually is the one that you can think of as having kind of the most benefits. So um, but I didn't, I want to just be really honest that I didn't engage in this like purposefully, right? So these things just sort of happened where I was in the hospital and there was this resident who came into my room and I was about to start physical rehab. So it was very fresh after the injury. And I had no sensation uh, below my waist and of course, and also no motor control below my waist. And I was, you know, he was talking about like me getting out of bed and I was like, are you insane? How am I gonna stand when I can't even feel my legs? And this resident pulled up his pant leg and slapped his prosthetic leg on my bed. And he was like, how do you think that I do it? And I just had this realization of, Oh yeah, people who have prosthetics also cannot feel their leg, but this man just walked in here. Do you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. I was so grateful that he shared that vulnerability with me that like it wasn't obvious that he had a prosthetic leg and that he shared that with me to get me. I mean, it was really kind of like snap out of it, woman. Like you're but people do this and you can do it too. And I thought about him so many times about how about this image of this man pulling up his khaki pant leg and exposing his prosthetic leg to me, right? And that meant a lot to me and like gratitude for that moment, I repeated. Um, another one is uh, I drove with hand controls on my car. So I also didn't actually know that was a thing until I needed them, but um, it's kind of like a boat where, you know, like forward, now I can't remember because I don't do it anymore, but like forward is 
brake and pulling back is gas, right? So I had like that ball on my steering wheel, like a school bus driver. And then I had another hand for gas and brake um, because I was, because I couldn't use my legs. Mm -hmm. So um, I was driving a physical therapy one time feeling sorry for myself and annoyed that I had to do it because you also can't like adjust your radio or drink your coffee, right? Which I know is not a really good problem, but I was feeling sorry for <laughs> but, myself. Yeah. And I'm at PT and we're using this medicine ball and it has straps on it. And I asked my physical therapist what the straps were for. And she said, for people who don't have hands, so they can like slide their arms into this medicine ball and, and get a workout. And I was thinking, I just drove here today feeling sorry for myself that I have these hand controls, but how would I have done that if I didn't have any hands, right? Mm -hmm. So I just left there and drove home crying, thankful that I had hands, right? Mm -hmm. So they weren't purposefully gratitude. I wasn't see, I wasn't purposely exercising gratitude. It was like these things kept falling into my lap where I realized it could be so much worse for me. Right. And I think it's just realizing those and like really focusing on them. Mm -hmm. I think it's important sometimes we get so wrapped up in what we see instead of kind of having this like separation process where you can look at it from a bird's eye view and say like, this is what I'm seeing, but this is actually what's going on. And it gives you so much more of like a time for like reflection and, and growth and being able to actually understand how to move forward. You know, just there were certain instances that happened to you and you kind of said, Oh my gosh, like I have hands. I literally drove here. I do have the ability. I can actually have a coffee, <laughs> you know, just all those little things but yet they add up to something, you know, much bigger. Yeah, for sure. But I also think that, you know, it takes some time to develop that skill where you do have the ability to be, you know, grateful for the things that you do have because some people, and, you know, you'll hear this a lot, when you're down, you're down. When you're up, you're up. You know, it's easy to just take a sports example. It's easy to act right when you're winning by 30. Yeah. But when you're down by 30 and the little thing happens, you know, it's kind of hard for you to control that action at time. And of course you got other forces going against you, but people are like that, you know, it's hard for, I think everybody struggles with this. Some days, you know, you just look in the mirror and I go, you know what? It's going to be a day. <laughs> I just don't have it today. It's just right. something may be off or I may feel off or anything like that. But I think as, you know, as I've grown as a person and as I get older, you have to have that ability to go, okay, you know, even though I may not be feeling right, um, you know, I can still do this. And I, I got a quick little story for you. There's a guy who, and I hope he's listening. He works out at the gym I work out at and his leg or his, excuse me, his, um, kidneys are at 4%. Okay. He works out every day, every single day. And he sits in the sauna. He cannot, um, like he, he struggles obviously with dehydration and stuff like that. So he, his version of getting himself dehydrated or letting the fluid get out of his body is he sits in the sauna for upwards of six hours a day. Wow. And he comes every day. Okay. So I, his name's Kevin. Um, great guy. And so I see him, you know, I said, you know, how's your workout, man? So he'll tell me. And then he does like the littlest workout and I do like a, a pretty high intense workout. And some days, you know, if when you're working out, you just don't got it. It's mm -hmm. just one of those days. And he told me one time, he said, you know what, man, the, some days your worst workout will be somebody's best workout. And the fact that you got to do, he's like, at least you're here. He mm -hmm. said, because some days I just can't be here because he's got gout and other injuries and stuff like that. He's like, so 
learn to be grateful. And I just kind of looked at that and it's like, you know, the second you're feeling sorry for yourself is, Oh man, I got to do this last set. Mm -hmm. It's and Mitchell and I talked about this too. It's, it's not a, I have to, the second you can change your brain from I have to, to I get to Mm -hmm. your life changes. Yep. I agree with that. Wash, wash our, our, so he's our, um, infield coach and third base coach for the Braves. And I remember one day I came out and did some of my work with him and I was just bad. Like it just, it wasn't good. And I was frustrated with myself. And he said, listen, man, like it's okay. Because at the end of the day, you'd much rather come out here, get your work done and not be satisfied with it than to have never come out here. Mm-hmm. And I kind of said like, you know what? Like sometimes that's okay because we're not always going to be at our best. And those days that we're not at our best, you still have to learn how to up. still show up, perform, um, cause that's, I think that's a, a big separator is like you said, when things are going great, baby, let me tell you, life is good. easy. It's a cakewalk when things aren't going good. It's tough. But in those moments, that's when you can actually grow even further because being able to maximize essentially when you're down is, is like a, a huge benefit in my opinion. Yeah. I, you know, I think a lot of it is also your immediate environment. So the thing that I miss about physical therapy when I'm not there is that is to have all this in your face, right? About people who are struggling, you know? So like when I was in physical therapy at Ohio State, the building that it was in, you had to take the elevator to get to this spinal cord injury floor where I went. And, um, but at some point I was able to finally use the stairs and I'm waiting for the elevator with somebody in a wheelchair who can't use the stairs and the elevator is taking forever. And I'm thinking, forget this. I'm just going to go take the stairs. I'm thinking, but this person can't. So then like, Mm -hmm. Should I stand here and, yeah. and talk to them because, this, you know, like they don't have this option, right? But, but out in the world, like we don't unfortunately see a lot of people who are going through chemo and don't have any hair and who are really struggling with their mobility. And it's just that you can easily get into your day-to-day life. And because of the way our society is structured, we don't see people who are struggling that frequently. Mm-hmm. And then it's hard to have this gratitude in your, these gratitude triggers like in your face. Yeah. And I, w- I was going to say, even, even to that point, uh, we don't always see people and that's the physical aspect, you know, seeing disability or, um, you know, some variation of being handicapped or being sick, but imagine, you know, when it's internal and, you know, mm-hmm. and when it's mental, it's like, you can't see it at all. Maybe through some signs of being able to read body language or this and that, but you truly can't see it. And it's just, it's just imagine, um, that's why you should never basically judge a book by its cover. You know, and and understand that you're not actually in that person's shoes, but you need to respect them for where they are currently at. Right. And yeah, I mean, you have no idea what anybody's going through. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, the saying your, your biggest enemy or the biggest person you're battling is the person you see in the mirror every day. Mm -hmm. Like if you can beat that guy or that girl, you're going to have a better day. Yeah. I'd like um, to talk a little bit about uh, just maybe like some specifics for the people that are listening on whether it's tools to kind of develop this happiness mindset, you know, we went through um, the different, you know, routines, whether that was spending time in nature or physical activity. Um, Could you just touch on some of those uh, habits that, you know, that do cover the 40%? Yeah. So, okay. So gratitude, let's start with gratitude. So gratitude habits include like keeping a gratitude journal at the end of the day, you write down three things that you're grateful for that day. 
you try not to repeat what you're writing down. My 13 year old son does this. He's been keeping it up for almost a year. So every night he writes down three things that he's grateful for. And the really good thing about that is that you're looking for them during the day. And that's part of why it works, right? You like notice something, you think like, oh, I'm going to remember this because I'm going to write it down later today. So that's part of why that works at all. Um, another is the idea of a gratitude letter. So I'm not encouraging people during coronavirus to do this, but what research says is that if you write a letter to someone that you've really never properly thanked for their role in your life, and then you physically hand deliver it to them, that has like the greatest effect. Um, and people also um, sort of underestimate the impact on your happiness that will have and the receiver's happiness. So the boost to everyone's happiness in those situations is much greater. Obviously, a letter is good no matter what, but if you can physically hand deliver it after social distancing is over, then that's a really good move. Um, the reason why some of these work are related to other happiness habits, though, so like savoring. So savoring is any time when you can really fully live in the moment and appreciate what's going on, which, of course, relates a lot to flow. Um, but savoring is sort of related to gratitude as well, right? So if you're in the moment and you're experiencing something that you really appreciate, you want to write down in your, in your gratitude journal later, you're savoring the moment. Another one is social connection. So we know that from an evolutionary perspective, people are, we've evolved to live in groups. So, you know, we had to hunt together in groups. We had to feed together in groups. We had to protect ourselves from threats in groups. So we have this uh, inclin natural inclination to want to be socially connected to one another. That also has to do with delivering the gratitude letter, right? You can see how none of these practices are really mutually exclusive. The social connection one is really interesting right now with coronavirus because we know that social isolation is actually the most extreme form of punishment across all societies. And there's a lot of concern about what's happening with people's mental health during social isolation and even like actually with prisoners, right? So I was reading an article yeah. about how, have you guys seen that about like the coronavirus outbreaks in prisons and how the concern is that now prisoners are being even more isolated than they were before? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I remember seeing something just saying, if you have very extroverted friends, be sure to reach out to them and see how they're doing. Because I mean, it does take a toll on, uh, on them mentally because they aren't necessarily getting that you know fulfillment from friends or the social connection aspect and there's a lot of there's a lot of research been done on prison studies exclusively and how you know isolation especially in prison really if this person does have a chance to get out and be back in the real world is going to hinder them so much just because as you said, you know, as humans, we are naturally inclined to have interaction. It's like that book that you gave me, Tribe. Mm -hmm. um, I was actually listening to a podcast the other day, and he was talking about that. But humans just, they want to be involved. They want to be, they want to have a role. And when you take that away from people, it is the worst thing that you can do. So definitely during COVID, this, a lot of people have been impacted negatively. Yeah. Yeah. I have a couple of students who after uh, Dansby was in my Maymaster class, and after that class ended, I've had a couple of people email me and say, I really miss having something to do every day and having this structure, even though it wasn't that structured of a class actually. Right. But right. this idea of like, I'm engaging with my classmates by posting on discussion boards and how hard that is when that's right. taken away. Right. Which I, I did get an A in that class. I just want everybody yeah, to know that yeah. that's for the record. For, I was waiting for that, that one to come for the record. Play. They're going to give me a hard time because they both have degrees and I don't, but that's okay. Yeah. I think it's great that you're working your degree. He's Slowly slow and steady. <laughs> yeah, slow and steady, baby. <laughs> uh, okay, I have other ones. You want me to keep going? Or Absolutely. Yeah, come on. 
Okay, so other ones include um, really working on not overthinking things and socially comparing yourself to other people. So a big one there is rumination, right? And just a personal example of this is that I was going through something really awful a couple of years ago, and I was talking to a really good friend of mine who's also a psychologist about it. And she came over to my house and she was cooking me dinner and I'm sitting at my kitchen table and I'm just like going through all the things that are going wrong. And I'm like unloading on her and she traveled from Indiana to Ohio to come and visit me. Right. And I'm going off for like 20 minutes. And I think this is like the most important offloading that I'm doing. And she goes, is this helping you? <laughs> I was like, oh, you're right. I don't feel any better than I did 20 minutes ago. And part of it is that, you know, there's a time and a place for that, obviously. And I certainly encourage people to engage in talk therapy with a certified therapist. But the idea that we, we have this idea that if we talk it out, we're always going to feel better. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that says that oftentimes what we're doing is we're actually just creating this negativity loop and that actually that just makes things a lot worse. And mm -hmm. so habits to stop rumination, you know, include things like making sure you're distracted. So when I was going through my, the worst of my spinal cord injury, I knew that the shower was a dangerous place for me because there's nothing to do in there except to think about how awful my life is. Right. And I was showering in, I had to sit in a shower chair because I couldn't stand up on my own, certainly not on a slippery surface. And I just felt like, you know, I was like 34 and I just felt like, am I going to be sitting in a freaking chair for the rest of my life while I'm in the shower? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I would go into the shower with specific goals, right? Like I would be, my research was really good because I would be grappling with a research question or I would think about how I wanted to redesign a course I was teaching. And so giving yourself sort of specific distracting goals at times when you know rumination is bad for you, you know, if driving in the car does that, you know, getting an audible account or supporting your local bookseller and listening to books on tape or podcasts while you're driving, right? Like be aware of the times mm -hmm. when you go to this dark place and try to prevent it. Yeah. That happens to me a lot, honestly, because especially the professional athlete, like you're not playing as good or whatever it may be. And it's very easy to sit and sulk in your hotel room about how you didn't play good or all those kinds of things. But I know when I kind of keep myself busy or focused on a goal of no matter how like the last couple of days it's been organizing the house like even just those kind of things kind of help drive you forward but, yeah yeah absolutely the to-do list i well there's there's debate about the helpfulness of the to-do list but when you know that you're going to ruminate um another one that uh, i wanted to mention was uh, learning forgiveness so honing your ability to forgive other people is uh, another happiness habit that I really struggled with, but I had a breakthrough. So I think the topic is really interesting. So it would be interesting what you guys think about this, but uh, I had somebody do something really terrible to me about five years ago, like really, really, really terrible. And I was having a really hard time getting over it. And I had never been like that. I had, I had really never struggled with rumination. I had never really struggled with forgiveness. So I was really ill-equipped to address this new problem in my life. And I would listen to all of these uh, spiritual leaders and podcasts and thought leaders about how to forgive. And so like, I remember Oprah's definition of forgiveness is um, when you finally stop wishing something hadn't happened. And I was like, fuck that. I still wish it didn't happen. Do you know what I mean? Right, like right. nothing was clicking for me. And I was really seeking some 
definition of forgiveness that would work for me to let this thing go. And it took years. Okay. Like I, it took years. And finally I stumbled on this YouTube link to a pastor. I might butcher her name, but it's Nadia Boltz Weber. Her last name is hyphenated. And she's this really like alternative, like tatted up pastor. And she had this definition of forgiveness. Her, her YouTube video is called forgive the assholes. Okay. And she defines forgiveness as thinking about you being connected to this person by a chain and you take bolt cutters and you cut that chain because what they did was so disgusting that you refuse to be connected to it anymore. And that was like, yes, it just like totally worked for me and I could forgive this person and I got this huge thing off my shoulders and now I've used that over and over again. But I never realized that practicing forgiveness and finding something that works for you is a happiness habit. Mm-hmm. And it comes in different forms. I mean, and I think a lot of people struggle with forgiveness and the fact that you put in that much effort into learning how to forgive. And I don't think a lot of people do that, which is why they kind of cope with it or just like kind of bottle, bottle it up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And just sit on it for mm-hmm. years and years or however long. Just like you, you know, a lot of these happiness habits kind of tie into one another and it comes back to gratitude. I feel like the same is, you know, in the adverse effect, you know, with, with the negative things because not being able to forgive and holding on to things is only going to lead to some of the rumination process like you talked about, um, and that can drag you down that way. So being able to understand that forgiveness is key and that it will lead to other greater things, you know, in your own happiness journey is, is very important. And I feel like almost like you need like 10 positive mental notes per like one negative one. Mm-hmm. Like the negative ones just seem to weigh so much more than like one positive one, if yeah. that makes sense. Oh yeah. And forgiveness, I think for everybody is just so hard, um, depending on what the topic is or like you said, you know, it took you five years to get over that one thing. And I almost think part of forgiveness is a mental game for me. Mm-hmm. I think that when I am put in a situation now, again, how I view this here at 26, it may be different at 36 or 46 or whatever, because you're constantly evolving. But for me, when I know I need to forgive somebody, I have to phrase it in my brain that, you know, in order for me to be better or go and do certain things or advance myself. If this thing is hindering me so much in my thought and my daily actions, I'm doing it not only for myself, but you know, for the other person as well. Like my forgiveness is helping me advance myself through that time. And I think that's really hard for people. And, you know, I think a lot of people in society struggle with it today. Well, it's like an ego check, honestly. Well, like you said, I'm glad you brought that up because you're you're hindering somebody else at the same time, yeah. in my opinion, because they are probably still holding on to that as well, and they can't move forward because they're sitting here saying, man, I wronged that person so bad, well, and I feel terrible, but they haven't forgiven me, so they're still holding on to that too. Yeah, and I think a conversation has to be had almost with that certain person, even if, even if the conversation ends with, look, you know, we're going to go our separate ways or whatever it needs to be, but how they reacted in a situation... I think you need some light on it because that may help you forgive that person. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously the situation would defer or, you know, be different for each one, but a conversation has to be had, which is always tough. Nobody likes having those conversations, 
especially this younger generation with how they speak to each other, how they communicate with each other. If they're texting, as we all know, um, you know, what you text somebody is way different or you could, your tone, if you're just speaking could be way different if you're in person. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think for younger people and obviously for, it doesn't matter what age you are, just the act of forgiveness and the act of having relevant, good conversation without having an emotional tear from it is very hard. Yeah. Yeah. We know that our, actually our natural response to someone injuring us. So emotionally or physically or whatever being injured is either to avoid it or to seek revenge. So that's just like the human. It's like fight or flight. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that neither of those things will ever be good, right? Those are not going to avoiding the problem is going to destroy you and the relationship and potentially your community seeking revenge will do the same thing, right? It can potentially hurt society at large, right? So the idea is that like, this is, this is something that I think is really powerful to listen to a variety of perspectives on and really try to feel, figure out what works for you. So there's this really good book that Dance Me Knows I'm reading this summer called The How of Happiness. And I just marked this definition because I was hoping we were going to talk about it. And it's about forgiveness. And it says, you guys, have heard, we've all heard this before, I'm sure. That Buddha said, holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of throwing it at someone else. You are the one getting burned. And I really would have thought that that would have helped me forgive because it's basically saying like, you don't even have to care about the other person. You're just hurting yourself. So even from Mm -hmm. a selfish standpoint, like get over it because you're the one getting burned. But I was just like so deep in pain that even that just didn't work for me. And I... I wish that I had, when I wasn't in so much pain, done some more work to learn forgiveness. Mm -hmm. That's interesting to look back on. I, I got a couple more, what I think are great questions, but, uh, if someone were to say, Hey, Ashley, how, if I'm, I'm very interested in starting my own journey in positive psychology, like where, where would you suggest somebody start? Okay. So I actually, uh, from a cheap perspective, I would really read this book. So it's called The How of Happiness, A New Approach to Getting the Life You Want. And the reason why is that it has a scale to help you measure your happiness, the Oxford Happiness Scale. Then it gives you a survey of which habits are most likely to work well for you. So there's, you know, along with all the things we've talked about, there's exercise, meditation, spirituality, and religion. There's others, right? And then it tells you what we know about the mechanisms of why those work. Although honestly, we really don't know very much about like the underlying mechanisms about why these things work. And then it gives you suggestions about how to engage in that. And there's others too. There's like setting uh, intrinsic versus extrinsic goals for your life, right? So as a professor of a lot of neuroscience students, I have a lot of students who come to me saying, I'm pre-med because my parents want me to go to med school, but it's not what I want. And I'm always like, I'm like, well, this is your life. This isn't your parents' Mm. life. What do you? That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But so that's an extrinsic goal because it's what somebody else finds acceptable for your life rather than what's driving you. Right. Mm. So anyway, it gives you all of these suggestions for different exercises. Okay. So that's like one, you know, the book is paperback. It's pretty cheap. What, like the first place to go. The second thing that I would do, which would actually be free, would be to check out the um, Penn's website, University of Pennsylvania. So they're the first master's program in positive psychology, and they have a lot of recommended readings and suggestions based on their program and, and sort of authors that have come out of their program. 
because positive psychology is bigger than this. So we're talking about happiness, but it also includes things like achievement, right? So Angela Duckworth did all that work with grit and saying like, why do people, why are people successful? So is it, it's not, it's not that they're smarter, it's that they're grittier, right? Was, is her, that's her whole mm -hmm. research program. Then there's stuff about uh, relationships and advice for romantic relationships. So we're talking about happiness habits here because actually my, my students at Vanderbilt have told me that they get enough advice about achievement and they would rather focus on their mental health, which is why I framed my class that way. But there's a lot more to the field. So mm -hmm. I would check those two things out. If you're really interested in it, I would suggest looking at going to their master's program at Penn. That's like the premier place. Marty Seligman, who created Positive Psychology, came from right. there and created that program. Yeah. So it just has to be like, I feel like a sense of commitment to it. Mm -hmm. Like you have to work on that all day, every day. Yeah. And like doing like it for Mason two said. days ain't going to make a difference. Right. Like you got to consistently, like Mason said, kind of reprogram your mind to mm -hmm. kind of look at the positive stuff that happens throughout each day. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, you know, if you're trying to build a habit, you know, if, <laughs> talk about people who start working out January one. Oh yeah. New you Year's resolutions. I mean? New Year re the, yeah. My, yeah. So you cannot, if you want to continue to work out and if you really want to, it's like people who go on diets, right? It's always like, it's not a diet, it's a lifestyle. Like that diet, once you achieve what you want in that diet, when you get off it, you're going to go back to what you were doing. I'll tell y'all firsthand, that's how it goes. <laughs> but once you make that lifestyle change, like you have to change your life. You have to be committed. So it's not, you know, whether it's working out or, you know, and I think, mental health is such a you know people think want to say like brush it off or think it's easy at times but it really is this own beast that you cannot just let go you have to work on it every day it's you know positive affirmation and speaking the positive things like mitch is always on me about speaking speak he wants to speak it into existence mm -hmm. meaning you know you know if i'm gonna run for, i'm gonna run five miles a day not mm -hmm. oh man you know. Yeah, we talk about that. We're we're big into like the manifestation almost, like the um, uh, how how would we explain what we're like the speaking things into existence, ultimately trying to create the right energies, um, you know, and create that right environment to be able to move forward. You know, we talk about that all the time, just in our message through some of the the clothing stuff that we do, trying to re uh, reiterate like the positive things about yourself or. Um, understand that this is your journey yeah. uh, and, and your way of living to and that's, see that better life. Like going off the habits thing, I was like, I got a bunch of just like positive messages everywhere. So even like if I am having a bad day, I'll go to the bathroom on my mirror. It's like, you know, whatever, X, X, and X. But it has What does like, it say? I can't tell you. That. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Mom's listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like attack the day or like, you know, like it's not that bad. Like, Go out and get it, like, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Just little stuff. Mm -hmm. Be your best self. Yeah, wow. that's why. I mean, that's why they're called habits, right? Because they're things that we have to do over and over again. So, um, the other another idea is to listen to that Happiness Lab podcast. So it's mm -hmm. by Dr. Lori Santos, who's at Yale, who created the really popular. Uh, her class isn't. I don't think it's called Positive Psychology, but it's about these. Maybe it's something like well-being or something. It's like I I know what you're talking about. Yeah. What, I mean, what did you, Dansby, what did you think about that podcast? Well, I think, well, I remember I told you, like, 
I'm very much more of like the informal podcast kind of person, like the, the conversation, but there's a lot of valuable information. And I think that it gives a lot of different, like unique perspectives, um, as to there, it comes in different forms and variations. You know, it's not just in, you know, like the unhappy millionaire, like people don't think that if you have a ton of money that you should ever be unhappy, but realistically, you know, that does happen. And so it just is very informative on, um, the many different perspectives and forms that negativity, um, you know, or pessimism can come into play. Right, right. So the unhappy millionaire one is about hedonic adaptation and this idea that, uh, unfortunately we can adapt to pretty much anything fortunately and unfortunately. So the idea is that like people who win the lottery actually only experience a boost in happiness for a very short period of time. And then they return to their basic set point. So that's sort of the, the bummer of it, I guess. But the, the good part about it is also that, you, you know, people who are undergoing chemo treatment also actually are able to maintain generally, I mean, this is a broad sweeping statement, obviously, their kind of baseline level of happiness despite going through this horrible situation. And some people actually even show what they call post-traumatic growth. But yeah, I, that would be another place where the stories there are so good. I was listening to, I think it's from season two. She's posting season two now. And there was one story about a woman who is a, I think a janitor on a chemo floor at a hospital. And basically her job is to clean up after people who are undergoing chemo treatments have had accidents. And I'm not exactly sure what kind of accident we're talking about here and how this woman goes into their room and they feel horrible and so embarrassed about whatever just happened. Right. And she says, thank you so much because I have a job, because this happens, I, have a, I can pay my car and I can make my rent. And because I, this happens and I know it sucks, but because I can be here and clean it up for you, that allows me to make my car payment. And I thought this made me tear up, right? Because it's just this taking this horrible thing and recognizing the good that can come from it. Right. Like the beauty in it. The good and the bad. Yeah. Um. If y'all have any other questions real quick, because I got, I got a, a big one to end uh, it. Well, the only, or not to end it, but I got a big one. Well, I, the only thing I want to talk about is your current research on um, memory and stuff like that and forgetting. And um, I'm really interested, when as soon as I read that you were doing that, I'm really interested in, number one, how you stumbled across it and you go, okay, I want to get into this. And then I want to know if you're doing it like what age groups you're doing it with? Like, are you doing it with young, younger kids? Are you doing it with older kids? And really my thought process as a teacher is, and I don't know what your research has been or what you can give away or anything like that, but with the process of forgetting and why certain individuals to forget, does that change their learning habits, whether they're a visual learner, audio, whatever it may be. And if we were able to identify these habits at younger kids, could we help them in the future with, you know, their adaptations or, cause if I got like one of the things I do for my classes, I try to figure out what kind of learner are you? And then I can obviously help you more. So if you want to talk a little bit about that or dive into that, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, my, uh, well, I want to get to this applied question, your last applied question. So just really briefly, um, in my lab, I study induced forgetting, and that was inspired by an existing paradigm, but I did it with pictures instead of with words. And the idea is essentially that 
if I show you a series of images, so let's just like really simplify it and, and do the eyewitness testimony application and say if I showed you um, like 10 faces, and let's say, for example, you see these faces because you witness a crime, let's say. And then I ask you, did you see these two faces? So like I bring you into the police station and it's a lineup. Do you recognize these people? Accessing your memory for those two faces actually causes you to forget the rest of the faces. So I call mm. it recognition induced forgetting because it's forgetting that is induced by or caused by recognizing some things that were held in your memory. So you're forgetting the other ones. And you know, there's real world applications of that, like the eyewitness, eyewitness testimony example, but you can also take that to education, which is where, where you're coming from, which is to say that, you know, if we only practice certain things that are stored in memory, or if we only study certain things that are stored in memory, is there an effect on forgetting the other information that we're not recalling? And the answer to that is that there's a lot of well-established research that tells us that it's actually just variety that will help us remember information. So the idea of um, learning styles specifically is actually not accurately describing it. So it's not as though your brain fundamentally works differently than my brain when it comes to learning information, assuming that we're both cognitively intact, healthy individuals. What actually happens is just that when a teacher presents information in a variety of ways, that creates more connections in memory and allows you to remember the information better. So when teachers are trying to cater to learning styles, and so they do something, or quote unquote learning styles, and so they present information visually and they present it, you know, using a song and they present it, you know, like kinesthetic learners and you do like your cheer words or whatever my element, I know you're not an elementary school teacher, right. but you know, the different ways that they try to address them. The reason why that works is not because people have different learning styles. It's because you're doing, you're presenting it in a variety of ways. And oh. so it's actually that um, more interesting, engaging repetition in a variety of formats that actually really helps learning. And so being a creative teacher, like you obviously are, because you're thinking about this, that's what will inoculate people against forgetting. I've been in his classroom. It's not that he's not that creative. <laughs> Check the scores, baby. Check the scores. I love that you said that, and I hope um, certain individuals who are educators listen to that because mm -hmm. I've been fighting the fight. Um, that that is, I guess, that almost leads me into what I want to talk about and something that really captured me in uh the book that we were reading in class um is that like the the transformation that we could ultimately have as a society trying to implement some type of positive psychology in education and educating people on this especially at a younger age because we're teaching people you know the grittiness the toughness um the optimism ultimately how to live a happier life by uh helping them learn traits that are necessary you know, I, I just I just want your thought process on how, uh, you know, we as society can do that better and, and ways that that could be implemented. Yeah, that's such a good question. So I OK, I have so many things I want to say to that. But to abbreviate my thoughts on this topic. Generally, I would say that the best thing that we could be doing with young people in general is getting them to think, you know, outside of themselves and beyond themselves. And this this there's so many examples of this. So. 
I have a friend who is a school social worker in Chicago. And years ago, she told me this story that I keep repeating over, this was probably eight years ago or something, but I keep repeating the story where there were these two kids in her school that they knew were stealing other kids' lunches or lunch money. And they just couldn't catch them, but they knew it was obviously these kids for a variety of reasons. And instead of like really trying to, you know, they had already had all sorts of problems and difficult home lives. And, you know, there's a reason why you're stealing lunch money because you don't have any money for your lunch, right? It's a really sad situation. So you don't want to, you don't want to like make these kids feel even worse. So what she did was she said, she brought them into her office before school. And she said that she was forming these uh, officer roles of students who she was going to give them these like shiny notebooks that she bought at Walgreens. Right. And that she wanted them to go around and write down when they saw someone doing something that didn't help the school community. And she hoped that they could intervene in a, in a polite and respectful way. And these kids were like, and, and they were like, yeah. And she was like, no, I want you to go home and think about it. I'm not going to let you commit. You know, like she really talked about, like it was this really big deal. Right. And so they came back the next day, she gets to school, they're outside her office and they're like, we really want to be these new, I can't remember what she called it, some officers of the school. And they, these kids who were creating problems became these um, change agents who like on the playground would make sure that people were taking turns on the swings and who, when they saw somebody left out, would go and include them, right? And so instead of confronting them as being bad and making bad choices, she gave them a responsibility to make the place better, right? And I think that, you know, I don't know if you guys want to get into this, but I would love to talk about Black Lives Matter for a couple minutes from a psychological perspective. But Please bring it on. Come on. Okay, so the idea of, you know, engaging on behalf of other people. So I'm a white woman, and, but I um, am very upset about what's going on with our black to our black community. And I'm glad that there's all this energy, but psychology tells, so racism can be somewhat easily described using psychology, which is one, or, or I shouldn't say racism, I should say, let's say police brutality towards black people, which is that we know we're really terrible decision makers. So we have limited working memory capacity. We can't hold that much information simultaneously activated in our mind. And so when we make a decision, it's not based on that much information. We also know from behavioral economics, Nobel Prize winners, Kahneman, Tversky, that we're just terrible decision makers, okay? We also know that part of how we make a decision is based on previous experience and that we statistically learn. So. Infants as young as nine months old can statistically learn a new language. And what statistical learning just means noticing regularities in your environment and assuming that they're going to keep happening, right? Like my roommate sure is grumpy every morning. They're not, my husband and my kids are not, I'm the grumpy one. But anyway, so, you know, like, so, you know, like I'm going to avoid them because I've noticed this regularity in my environment, right? So if we're statistically learning that in our society, if you see a black person, the odds are that they are not a CEO, that they are not the president of a university, that they are not whatever prestigious position you wanna think of because we've done a terrible job helping advance black people in our society. We're a bad decision maker and you have statistically learned that they don't have as much power as a white person. It's not difficult to guess why someone would kneel on their neck in the middle of the street. And so the only, in my opinion, answer to this issue is that we all have to make sure that we're promoting black and brown people into positions so that we're statistically learning 
that they are just as likely to be the CEO of Facebook and the president of the local university and the local mayor or governor or what, whatever your high society, mm-hmm. right? High society is such a stupid word, but term, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, uh, and we might, we, fact, man, we might need to get, get you on this, but there's, I, I saw something about, you know, just they broke down the percentages of people in power in the country and you look at the percentages that people are white than in each of those roles and it's over 90 percent well and you had talked about um this is kind of a little bit off of that but you had talked about like women athletes getting paid and stuff like that even if you look at something called the gii i'm about to drop some knowledge on you boys right here which is your gender inequality index Okay, when you're looking at the score, so a gender inequality index is based on a score that goes from zero to one. You want to be closer to zero, meaning you have less inequality. When you're looking at scores from around the world, if you look at the score of the United States, you'll be like, wait a minute, we're not number one, which is a lot of times when I teach this, a lot of times I show kids, like, how are we not, you know, we're not in the top two, like we're not top three. Why is this? Well, when you analyze the number of women that are in positions of power, it is very low in the United States in comparison to somebody who may have a woman as their prime minister or they may have a lot of women mm-hmm. in the in parliament or whatever. So that kind of hits on kind of exactly what you're talking about, but on a different, obviously this is a gender thing. Um, but it's, a, it's the same theory. This is, that's what I'm saying. It's the same theory. Um, and Dr. King actually speaks on this as well when you're talking about um, getting people of color in power, in positions of power. Um, you're talking about he his involvement with getting individuals to vote and getting people registered to vote, which in my opinion, there has been, of course, the first election I think I can remember is 2004. Mm -hmm. Um, And growing up through the elections and maybe you can speak on this. You've seen more elections than we, I have not seen a more, (laughs) not like that, (laughs) but I have not seen the push to get people registered and for people to vote like this ever before. Right. Um, so I don't know if you want to kind of talk on that or if you, I'm sorry, I got off track, but that's just no. what popped into my brain when you started talking about these statistics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. So yes, I completely agree with you. There hasn't been the energy that there is now. And I'm really glad to see that. I also just don't think that it's going to be enough though, until those of us who have the ability, you know, okay. So I've been in academia since I went to college and I never left college. So I don't, I can't speak to other um, arenas or professions, which maybe you guys can add to this conversation in that way. But I have sat on hiring committees where people say, yeah, we want a diverse candidate, but there aren't any in the application pool. Well, there aren't any in the application pool because we're not putting them in the pool. The idea Mm -hmm. is that like, sure, say we're hiring for a new professor, let's say, right? And the idea is, yeah, we have pressure from our dean to hire a diverse candidate. We all agree that that's the right thing to do, but there's, let's say there's no black applicants. Why are there no black applicants? Well, because there aren't enough black people getting PhDs. And why is that? Well, there aren't enough black people in our undergraduate system who are getting pushed to go, getting encouraged and getting the advice and getting the high quality research experiences to get them into the mm-hmm. PhD program. And why is that? You know, I mean, you could just follow us down it's and down. down effect, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it goes all the way back to slavery. So who's going to do something about it? I'm just like so sick of people saying we want diversity, but they're not in the pool, so we can't do anything about it. Especially as somebody who works at a university, 
let's put them in the pool. Let's make sure. Mm -hmm. Yes, let's let's find our black students and let's mentor the hell out of them to get them into PhD programs so that that do you know what I mean? And this is just my career, I realize. Right. But if we all were more if we really wanted racism to end and we really wanted this to be fixed, we would be making sure that all of us were doing whatever was in our power so that when you see a black person on the street, you know that they could potentially be have significantly more power in our society than you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My, my uh, dad has always said like, there's a golden rule and it's the fact that those who have the gold make the rules. And just, you know, as to the point that we were talking about earlier, I mean, if those aren't people of color, you can imagine what impact that's going to have on that decision making. Um, and you know, it's something that I think we all need to be a little more intentional about is the fact that you look at our history the white man in our culture has had hundreds of years to ultimately lay a foundation for wealth. Whereas if you look at the black community, it's not necessarily the same. And I'm Mr. History over here, I'm sure can speak well, on it. But. What you're speaking on is something that I refer to as not I refer to, but people refer to as this idea of generational wealth. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you're looking at, you can, if you want to talk about slavery, you want to talk about the ending of slavery and, um, I got in a discussion. Uh, there's a good book out there, that actually, that my sister bought me for uh, Christmas a couple years ago, and it's like the reenslavement of African Americans after slavery to World War II, and it talks a lot of things. Um, it actually hits on a lot of Atlanta, and it talks about, you know, the things that are happening to um, African Americans or people of color and minorities as well to hinder their rights and hinder the things that they go on. But speaking on generational wealth, so this is the best example that I have. And this is what I talk to um, people, you know, talking to me about slavery and stuff like this and the importance of generational wealth. Okay. My great grandparents who are white, they purchased a house in Kennesaw. Okay. When they passed away, they, the house was paid off. The house was passed to me. Whether or not I keep the house, live in the house, sell the house, I've just gained equity. I've just gained wealth. All right. When you start talking about individuals of color and you start talking about um, the systematic approach that has hurt them and that has not allowed them to have certain opportunities for generational wealth, um, that is how you get the situation that you are in currently. And this is not something that has this has been going on from the very beginning before even slavery. So when people started coming to the United States, uh, they, they, the idea is just like if you're owning any business, you want to have the cheapest labor. There's a reason that individuals who work at fast food or McDonald's get paid what they do. It's not because they're valueless as a human. It's because McDonald's as a corporation wants to make the maximum amount of money possible under the economic system of capitalism of the United States. When you're talking about the history of the United States, you talk about these individuals that were brought over originally, like you can take Georgia, for example, it's a debtor colony. Okay. Well, you have this idea of indentured servants, but here's the thing with indentured servitude is once your years are up you are free. These indentured servants, their only skills that they had were agriculture, they were farming. So what do you do when you get your freedom? You go build your farming. You've now built competition. So what do people do who want free? Well, they want cheap labor. Mm -hmm. They have slaves come in. That slavery and those slaves that come in, they are cheap. So now you have the maximum amount of profit available. Boom. So you're talking about people who say, well, when the South Civil War, heritage, hate, all of that. No, it's an economic war. And the idea is you are wanting maximum profit gain and you are using the life of others to gain that profitability. And the book, you can go even further. Why are suburbs created? Why are gated communities created? Why are country clubs created? Why were private schools created after Brown versus Board was passed? 
it's a systematic thing that has been going on for years. And I really do think that individuals are fed up with it mm-hmm. and you have to address it. And like you said, you have to be the change. Yeah. It's just intentional. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, well said. Yeah. Sorry. If that was too much. <laughs> well no, said. Was solid. No, I love it. But I've it's been, also, I've been very fired up about it. Yeah. And it's also educating. I mean, I didn't know half of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's like yeah. having these conversations and trying to dive in to more knowledge on all this stuff. Yeah. 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 And I think you have to be open to it. So of course, like, do I know everything? No, there are teachers who I work with who, I mean, at a high school, I mean, they are, they know their stuff. There's professors at Georgia state, um, Georgia Southern. I have a guy that, uh, got me to my degree where, and he's now at Purdue. I mean, there's a lot of people that have impacted the way that I think and what I know, but you really have to be open to educating. That's okay. You don't know. There's tons mm-hmm. of stuff I don't know. There's, I mean, you know, so you have to go, Oh, I didn't know that. And then take it, research it, and then put it into place in your life. Mm-hmm. And I think once you get that, that ability as a human being to take knowledge that you had no idea about and then implement it, that's where the change starts mm-hmm. to come. Yeah. Something um, in the class I'm in now that, uh, cause you know, it's, it's kind of anthropology uh apology a little bit some sociology you know kind of all of it mixed in and something that i probably knew but wasn't quite aware of or we don't obviously do a very good job of educating people on this is one thing that he said is you can trace you know human history back to you know, 200 300,000 years ago and it started essentially in africa like the standard for skin color is darker um but we don't necessarily believe that or kind of educate people on that and then the one thing that blew my mind was if you were to look at like genetic variations um in skin color me and you are probably further apart in variation than me and someone in the black community like i am much closer genetically to someone in the black community than i would be with you which it's just it that's mind-blowing because where you sit here and they said that's not possible at all well it's science and it's true. So yeah. um, that, that that was just kind of something that like literally blew my mind because we don't think like that, but it's important to educate to people te- yeah. to think like that. Right. And that's a big component right there. Mm-hmm. What, what you're, you're taught, taught and how you're taught. And it goes to the idea that, you know, racism is taught and there's a certain way that, you know, individuals think that is formed, you know, no, um, there's a coach for us and he, he teaches our ethnic studies course as well. And he gives this great example of racism and how it's taught. And I'll share it real quick. And what he says is, you know, when you're, uh, you're, when you're babysitting a little kid, or let's just say you have a little, a two year old, three year old. Okay. And this thing, this creature walks in the room and it's got four legs, fur and a tail. Well, when it's a baby, it has no idea what this is. Right. So the baby goes, ah, ah, and then you go, no, babe, that's a, that's a cat. That's a cat. That's a cat, baby. Okay. So then the next time this creature walks in, four legs, hair, tail, what's the baby say? Cat, cat. And he goes, no, that's a dog. But it's taught. Mm-hmm. They have to be taught. So it's the same way. And it's like you said, a couple, we talked about this with um, our friend who played football at Alabama and he's now in the NFL. And, you know, the, the idea of, the systematic racism that goes on just in Alabama or that he experiences in everyday life being a person of color. And it's a generational thing. And the idea is, yes, we have to do a better job, especially me being an educator of influencing the youth, but anybody 
you have to do a better better job of just helping them, bringing them to that point, and like you said, you kind of helping them along the way so that these people can be in positions of power. Yeah, I think this, I mean, this comes back to the positive psychology, right, though. So in terms of sort of how one of the secrets to becoming being happier is making sure that you're doing things for other people, right? And, right. you know, one of my when when I had my spinal cord injury for a while, I was wearing adult diapers. And that was so horrible. And it felt so awful. And you can you you can imagine all of the problems with that. And one of them is that I didn't, I, thankfully I recovered, but I didn't, I couldn't really hold it when I needed to go to the bathroom. And so if I was in public and I went to the bathroom and somebody was in the handicap stall because people use the handicap stall, like it's just another stall that might've caused me to have an accident, right? Because right. it was occupied. And I, because I was in the wheelchair or because I was in the diapers, I didn't feel like I could say like, you, you know, get out of the handicap stall. You're a selfish bastard. But now that I'm standing up and I'm not in my diapers, my, when I'm in a line, like at an airport, let's say, if I look back in the line and I see someone with a walker or whatever, and the handicap stall gets open, I say like, Hey, that person needs to get ahead of us in line, right? Like it's much easier to advocate when you're not the one that's down in the dumps or that needs this help. And so I just like really think that a lot of us could actually boost our happiness if we're fired up about what's going on with the black and brown community right now and actually do something for them. Mm -hmm. And there was a great sign that I saw. It says, if you're one of the people that say all lives matter, why aren't you pissed off? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. No, I'm, I'm very glad you kind of broke that down in more of like a psychological way because um, like that stuff's like true, you know, and I think it very much gives people that education understanding of what this actually looks like because we say systematic, you know, oppression or racism and we don't necessarily understand quite what that means. But as, as the more you start to educate yourself and learn and hear these things that you're talking about or, um, you know, how funding is created for public schools and, you mm. know, that's where it's coming from through the property taxes and all those kinds of things, you start to really piece it together saying, wow, like this my eyes just are. went completely open now. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let me, so before we hang up, you tell me what you guys are doing for these female athletes. Not that I know they're not marching in the streets for white women. Okay. I know that this is black lives matter moment. However, Dansby, your girlfriend is a female athlete, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she plays um, professional soccer. She plays for the women's national team, and and aren't you know, they aren't they the ones that are in the news about just being like horribly underpaid? Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so I guess the thing for me is similar to what we were just talking about educating people. I think uh, it's part of a cultural thing that when we watch uh, men's sports, we are so just like enthralled with the ridiculous athleticism and things that we can't necessarily see ourselves doing, but it's important to note how well females can excel in their sport. And that just because they're female doesn't mean that we put them in a certain category saying, Oh, well they're great, but I mean, they're good for a, for a female like that. That way of thinking is something that needs to be adjusted. Um, because like, you know, Serena Williams has been battling that, you know, has oh, been yeah. fighting that fight, you know, just with, I'm not the greatest women's tennis player. Like I'm one of the greatest tennis players ever. ever. Um, and you're seeing that now with, you know, with the uh, women's soccer. Um, and I think a lot of the time, and I'm not trying to speak for them, uh, but people sometimes can be misinformed saying we want equal pay. It's more of they want what is fair for 
what that they have been producing. Um, because we, we all do understand that there is more money in a male sport. You know, like there, there's more money in the NBA than there is in the WNBA. That's fact. But when you start looking at the differences in, in the value and, and fair pay, that's when it really gets thrown off. Cause it's like, wait, so you're saying because they're male, they're going to get treated this way as opposed to me being a female, I'm going to get treated this way. You know, it's just kind of leveling that playing field in those regards, at least in my opinion. I don't know what y'all think, but. I mean, I'd agree. You have a lot more, you know, connection to it mm-hmm. than being a professional athlete and then also dating a female professional athlete. Yeah. But, I mean, you've you've met some of her teammates and, yeah, like, right. the appreciation I've had for, you know, I was never a soccer fan, so my appreciation for soccer has gone up. But just seeing, like, they're the best in the world at what they do, and it's not by coincidence, it's every year. You know what I mean? So it's it's something that they excel at the highest level, um, and they are up there, in my opinion, I mean, as one of the better. To what he was saying about the system. Mm-hmm. And they're getting exploited, yeah. which mm-hmm. goes back to what we're talking about, about a certain level of athletes, because I think when you're looking at, so the U.S. women's team, when they won the World Cup, their ratings versus a normal men's game or like when the men's in the World Cup is you can't compare them because they're so much higher Mm -hmm. and they do not get compensated for that. Mm -hmm. And of course that's on a national scale in comparison to, you know, like you said, global, yeah, yeah, globally in comparison to maybe their professional league and what they can get paid and what's fair and, you know, for their skills. But it does have to be a change of how the female athlete is viewed. Mm -hmm. And it's a constant effort to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause at the end of the day and, and something that I hope people can take away from from this little section is guys can get away with not being as skilled because of just the pure raw athleticism. Yes. Females don't, but that goes to show you that the skill level for females is actually probably higher than what a males would be. Um, just even training, you know, being out there at the soccer Technique. field with Mal and them, they're like, man, wouldn't that be so easy? Like being a guy, cause they had some, some a guy soccer um, player out there doing some stuff with them. Like just certain things that he can, do because he can track down that ball a little bit better even when i kick a bad pass like he can still go get it it almost like the women would get exploited more for it because they couldn't do that but their actual skill level mm-hmm. um like from a technical standpoint is potentially better which if, if you look at that from like an nba or basketball standpoint um i've had both experience coaching men and women's basketball and i've always said it is you know you won't get the big play that you do but women athletes when it comes to basketball it is fundamentally sound and i'm sure the guys not gonna like this but they listen mm-hmm. they listen mm-hmm. and it's they're, a, coach, it's a, they're it's, coachable it's like a cleaner game yes you know, and it has to, you have to be more fundamentally sound because you're not going to have the ability to knock down 35 footers yeah like, or you know the fast break and the fast break and, dunk yeah no which is which air. is what i think is so cool because it's like they're actually potentially more skilled than male athletes. Yes. It's just that guys tend to have more of a, um, like they can make up for it essentially because of just the physicality aspect. Some NBA basketball players are not necessarily good basketball players because their skill set. They're good because they're seven two. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Of course, you have to have some skills. I'm not saying that just because you're seven two, you're gonna make it to the league. But I'm saying that there, it there, it, it does help, and there is a certain. I mean, we've all played sports and. You know, you can definitely tell. Like, there's the one thing you cannot coach size. Anytime a college athlete, or college coach comes to recruit a high school kid, that coach, well, you know, he's not the most skilled. Yeah, well, he's six six. Right. He's six six two eighty. Right. Like, okay, well, 
you have a point. So. Well, are there are there anything? So I have a plan about how I'm gonna what I'm gonna do about Black Lives Matter. Is there anything that that most people can do to support female athletes besides buying tickets? So we did we had season tickets to the Vandy women's basketball games, mm -hmm. and my 13 um, year old loves basketball, and so he does the Vandy camp summer camps, and they let them be ball boys. So I ended up at some men's games, although I was hardcore supporting the women. And I could not believe how packed the men's games were and how dead the women's game, it made me so angry mm -hmm. how dead the women's games were compared to, and I know we have like, what, Scotty Pippen Jr. So maybe he's like, right. I don't know, because I don't have another year to compare it to. But besides ticket sales, are there things that people can do? I think, um... One thing, and, and this may be a roundabout way to answer that question, is statistically I would love to know, because um, I, I don't know the exact number, but it's a kind of a cultural thing that at some point females start to transition out of sport instead of sticking with it because culturally we kind of say females are supposed to be like this. And so potentially you're missing out on great athletes and people that could really change the sport because they are being pushed away from the sport itself. So I think... I think that in itself is part of something like the, a cultural difference. Um, and we can do a little bit of research on uh, some different like funds or charities or organizations that definitely push uh, women's sports. Cause I've, I've, I've done a couple of things with uh, you know, like providing equipment for different, you know, like uh, female uh, sports teams and things of that nature. So we can definitely look up some of that stuff and kind of provide links um, on social media about it to just kind of generate some, uh, attention and I can, I can email you and share you, share those to you as well. And, and to your point, not to get off track of, um, obviously we'll share the links and stuff like that and we'll definitely do some research, but that actually may start to change because culturally in the United States, the United States currently has a birth problem, meaning individuals are waiting to have children. And so what's going to happen with that, um, start, What's going to happen with that is as you are going to wait to have children, those female athletes may end up being, um, you know, available to play longer. And, you know, I, I use this when I'm talking to my class about social security population, you know, why does this matter? Um, but they actually may be able to stay in the league longer or, you know, pursue other avenues. Cause like you're seeing more women pursue higher degrees such as yourself and obtain, you know, positions of status because they are like our generation. It is not, do kids have, or do people have children at lower twenties? Sure. But that's not the common trend anymore. And that may be because women are now having access to more women's rights and more access to education and furthering their education, which is going to allow them to open up certain doors and stuff like that. And the fact that women are motivated, they're incredibly smart. I always tell that to my kids. Um, and you all not only want to do bigger and better things, but you're doing them, which is going to push those athletes mm -hmm. back. Cause I think for the, I'm just say for the U S women's team, how old is Rapino in them? They're like 33 ish. So that's pretty, I mean, I don't know. I don't, again, I'd love to see the stat on like what the prime is for mm -hmm. a woman athlete's age, but I do think that you're going to start seeing a, a cultural shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay, I have one more question for you guys, and then we should stop talking. Okay, Dansby, I think that um, this is a time, I mean, especially with coronavirus, but even without it, that people are kind of doubting the value of the college degree. 
And obviously I'm biased because I'm a professor, but mm. I think it's a really beautiful thing that you are continuing your degree right now. And I'm wondering, um, I kind of already asked you this, but I'm wondering why. You probably got tired of us making fun of it. Probably it's a dropout. <laughs> us rubbing it in his face. Uh, I'd say it's two different things. Part of it, I promised my mother that I would get my degree. So if I don't live up to that, then uh, I'm not worth much anyway. So um, <laughs> no, but I would say the other part of it too is I, I. it was such a perfect opportunity for me, especially because of the timing, because our season goes so long that I have no chance of being able to do classes. Um, and so this is just a perfect time to kind of knock a little bit out. And then when the uh, when another opportunity were to present itself, I could take full advantage of it and ultimately receive my you know degree from Vanderbilt because I wouldn't get it from anywhere else. You know, that wouldn't be a thing. So um, now is just the perfect opportunity. And I also part of it, too, for my own happiness, I need uh, like a routine. I need things that I can't accomplish and I need having goals and, and doing things that ultimately keep me connected and, and moving forward. Like that's part of it as well. Yeah. When I, when we were talking at the beginning of the semester and I, I, we were talking about this you said something like, um, a college degree means something to me, or you said like that piece of paper means something. And I thought that was really a beautiful thing to say because, people really struggle to get that piece of paper. And to hear that from someone like you who probably financially doesn't necessarily need it um, really helps us think about the value of an education. Mm -hmm. Well, I started it, you know, so it was kind of like, yeah, I started something and I like, yeah, yeah, I want to finish it no matter if it takes me a little bit longer. Right. But I mean, I was in school for five and a half years just to get my (laughs) undergrad. So, but I finished. Yes, you did. Yeah. And I was, I was going to finish. So but, there was no doubt of not finishing. And to kind of hit on your important or your question about the importance of a degree, I don't think the importance of the degree is changing. What I think is changing is individuals who are going, and I speak on this a lot, individuals who are going to college are fed up with colleges exploiting them for money. The fact that you have to take core classes at universities whether or not you know what your degree wants to be is essentially a repeat of your last two years of high school, which is straight profit for that university. The fact that you have to live on certain campuses and live in housing and get this and that, that's straight profit for a university. So I think what kids are starting to do is they're not devaluing the degree. I think they're trying to figure out other ways, whether it be trade school or whatever. And like Mitch said, you know, College is not for everybody, and everybody's on their own timeline in college. I think once you get to college, it's like a whole different beast. You're, nobody's telling you what to do. If it's raining, you don't have to go to class, you know. Um, but <laughs> If it's raining, is that what you just said? Yeah, if it's raining. I mean, you, technically. You know, yeah, t- I mean, technically, right? <laughs> yeah. You don't have to go to class. Now, some of us would go, and some of us wouldn't. Also, why it took me five and a half years. <laughs> All that but, rain really kept you from class. Yeah. yeah. yeah it rained a lot at Georgia Southern. So. Yeah. <laughs> But what I'm saying is, you know, individuals, when they're leaving high school, they think, man, I have to go do this instead of, again, I get to go do it. And I do think the financial burden is a big part of it is you've got kids going into debt. And that also speaks on, well, why are people waiting to have children? Well, they're in debt. What do children cost? Money. What do you not have? Money. So it's it mm-hmm. kind of just goes on that. And I think individuals are kind of fed up with, which obviously has nothing to do with your 
with your, I've always said, if you want kids to be great at college and you want kids to be excited about going to school, here's what we need to do. Invest your money in kids, invest your money in your educators and things will change. Yeah. Yeah. Spoken like a true high school educator, my brother. Hey. Public school, high school. <laughs> yeah. Public school, high public school, school educator. Um, but yeah, we, we really, really, really appreciate you coming on Seriously. and the insight was awesome. Yeah. Uh, hey, yeah, it was fun thoroughly talking to you guys. enjoyed this. So I do real quick before you leave. Do you want to, I know you have a podcast. Do you, do you like to speak on it? Where can they find it? Where can they listen Instagram to it? Instagram, any books. social medias, books. Yeah. I know you got like three books floating around out there. Um, my husband and I created the brain bios podcast. It's at brainbiospodcast.com to interview people who would give you advice about succeeding in a a career in psychology and academia. So it's a very specific (laughs) audience, but if that happens to be up your alley, you should check it out. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. We had a blast. Good conversation. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, you guys too. Have a good day. Thank you so much. You too. What's up, team? It's Mitch from The Express. We appreciate all y'all tuning in and listening to us chop it up every episode. We hope that y'all are getting something out of these just like we are. Uh, Please subscribe and shoot us a review. Follow us on Instagram at The Express Podcast. And go ahead and shoot us a DM if there's anything y'all want to hear us cover or guest or anything like that. We'll try to make it happen for y'all. Much love, team. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Yurt.